I don't have a slide for this, but um, <clears throat> it's worth sharing with you. It says in 1 Kings 6, 1, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Do you know what that tells us? 480 years after the Israelites left Egypt, that's when Solomon began to build the temple. You see, David wanted to build it. His heart was right, but God said, sorry, you can't because you've got blood on your hands. You're responsible for the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, but I will give the privilege to your son, Solomon. So 480 years after they left Egypt, Solomon began to build the temple. Do you know how many years it took him to finish the temple? Ten. What is 480 plus 10? 490. Does that number sound familiar? Is that 70 times 7? Hmm. Is God not only a master architect, but a master mathematician? Does he not really like numbers? Does he not do everything decently and in order? Is there not a lot of hidden truth in the Bible that sometimes we miss? Do you know that from Abraham, when he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees until the time of the Exodus, or 490 years? Do you know from the time they left the Exodus to the, build, the finishing and building of the, uh, Solomon's temple, the first temple, was 490 years? Do you know that from the time Artaxerxes wrote a decree to rebuild the temple after it had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, from the time of that decree of Artaxerxes until the second coming of Christ, yes, second coming, is 490 years. If you have never studied Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, it's 490 years. We've only come to 483 because there's another seven years to go, which is the great the tribulation. Three sets of 70 times seven. Is that, does that not give you spiritual heartburn? It does me. And I just discovered this this week, so I'm still all excited about it. Okay, now at this point, I want to share with you some of the contrast, the interesting contrast between the wilderness tabernacle and Solomon's temple in respective typology of Christ. The tabernacle, you know, came first, obviously. It came before the temple. The tabernacle was built by Moses the prophet. Prophet was the office of Jesus Christ at his first coming. Remember Deuteronomy 18.15 said that the Messiah would be a prophet like unto Moses. The temple was built by Solomon the king. King is the office Christ will fulfill at his second coming when he establishes his kingdom on earth. What is the third role of Christ? Prophet, priest, and king. Priest. What is his role today? He is our great high priest. 
The tabernacle was a temporary tent. It pictured Christ's humanity, his earthly life in a tent of man's likeness. The temple remained in one place. It was permanent. It pictures Christ's existence eternally as God. The tabernacle was used in the wilderness. It represented the Lord's earthly ministry in the wilderness of this world. The temple was established in Jerusalem. It represents his future reign over the world as king of kings in the millennial kingdom. The tabernacle was unattractive externally. We'll, We'll talk about that in a minute too. Or is that next session? I don't know. But we'll talk about it this morning. It wasn't much to look at externally. Uh, Christ the man was not extraordinary to behold. He was like a root out of dry ground, it tells us in Isaiah 53. There was nothing about special about his appearance that made him desirable. The temple, however, was known throughout the world for his, its magnificence as Christ will be known worldwide for his great glory at his second coming and during the millennial kingdom. Isn't that an interesting comparison between the tabernacle and the temple? Well, with time, Israel became so heavily engaged in her worship of false gods, sadly, that God used King Nebuchadnezzar to carry her captive into Babylon. If you guys like gods and goddesses and idols so much, I'm going to just saturate you with them. And he sent them to Babylon, and they were cured (laughs) of their idolatry. How long were they there? Seventy years they were in Babylon. Well, Ezekiel was privileged. Well, I don't know if you call this a privilege or not. It would be pretty sad. But in Ezekiel chapter chapter 10, he saw the progressive departure of God's glory, God's Shekinah glory, leave Israel. First of all, he saw it leave the temple. It just went up from the Ark of the Covenant and left the temple. Then he watched in his vision as the glory of God left Jerusalem, the holy city, and then he saw it leave the whole nation of Israel. And Ichabod was written over Israel. Ichabod means the glory has departed. Sad, sad day. You don't want that to happen in your church when the spirit departs the church. Um, And uh, the, the, the glory of the Lord never did come back to dwell with Israel. After Solomon's temple, the glory never did come back to any of the future Temples, did you know that? The visible Shekinah glory, but the glory of God did come back to dwell with Israel. But unfortunately, she failed to recognize him because this time he wasn't veiled in a cloud or in fire. He was veiled in human flesh, the likeness of man, and they missed him. They did not recognize him. When Herod the Great, and there was nothing great about that man except his ego, 
When Herod the Great came to power shortly before Christ was born, he decided that he was going to embellish and he was going to enlarge the second temple, which was, you know, after Solomon's temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar when he took Israel into Babylon, they destroyed everything, they took all the furniture. And ever since then, nobody knows where the Ark of the Covenant is, by the way. Um, and Indiana Jones is still looking for it. But um, <laughs> uh, when, what was I saying? Okay, so when Solomon's, when, the, when a remnant returned from their captivity in Babylon and they went back, they rebuilt, they built a temple. It's called Zerubbabel's Temple because Zerubbabel was the governor of Judea at that time and he began building it with Joshua, who was the high priest at that time. They were two good men. They rebuilt it. It's called Zerubbabel's Temple or the Second Temple, but it was, ne it was not nearly as magnificent as Solomon's Temple had been. But the glory, God approved, I don't understand this. God was happy with that temple, Zerubbabel's, but his glory never returned. Well, then years later, Herod the Great took Zerubbabel's temple and he enlarged it. It covered, look at the difference up there between Solomon's temple and Herod's temple. Solomon's temple was magnificent, but Herod's temple was huge. It covered 35 square acres. It took him 40, not him, but the people building for him, 46 years to build it. But Herod didn't care about the Jewish people. He wasn't doing this so that they had a wonderful place to worship. He did it to, um, to, for his own name. And, and he succeeded because to this day it's known basically as Herod's temple. Uh, God wasn't present in it. Only when Christ entered into its outer courts was God present in it. And it's interesting that he was not even allowed past the outer court. Here he is, God. And he can't go into the holy place or the holy of holies. You know, Herod's temple was void of the Ark of the Covenant. It was not there. Do you know what they had in place of the Ark in the holy of holies? Now imagine this. A high priest got to go in there on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, once a year. He'd go in there. And did he see the Ark with the beautiful cherubim over the mercy seat? You know what they had in there instead? A big, flat stone. And I thought, how appropriate, how appropriate that is because God wasn't in it. They'd replace God for a heart of stone. Well, God was moving from the shadow to the substance. He then provided, Herod's temple was no good. It really was, you know, they'd made it into a den of thieves. But he provided his own temple on earth, and it was not built by human hands. It was the physical body of his son that he prepared uh, for him to take up his residence on earth. He was God with us, Emmanuel, in an earthen vessel. But his voluntary sacrificial death of that tabernacle, of that temple, made his ultimate objective of eternal fellowship, eternal dwelling with man a reality. Because he became a tent, a, te a temple, and allowed man to kill that temple, destroy that temple, and he rose from the dead, that made his goal of dwelling with man possible. For all who believe in him will dwell with him eternally. Now, did you notice as we went through this that each of God's earthly dwelling places was short-lived? The original wilderness tabernacle wore out. 
eventually, and it was replaced by Solomon's first temple. It was later destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Then Zerubbabel's second temple was uh, reconfigured into Herod's temple, but who destroyed Herod's temple in 70 AD? The Romans destroyed that temple. Then Christ's temple body was destroyed by the Jews who actually used the Romans to do the um, execution, the crucifixion. Paul then... Um, Another, another temple came into existence, which Paul, the Apostle Paul, called an holy temple in the Lord for an habitation of God through his spirit. And that holy temple is present today. It's us. If you're born again and you are a member of his church, his church today is his dwelling place on earth. He doesn't dwell in a physical building Churches are just buildings. He dwells in people. We are his walking tabernacles. He inhabits the spiritual collective body called his church. The Old Testament tabernacle prefigured individual believers of the church today. So it not only prefigured our Savior, it prefigured us. Writing to Christians, Paul said this. He said, for ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. But God only dwells in tent bodies of believers for a limited time because our human bodies are subject to death, aren't they? Yet the good news about death, that's not an oxymoron for believers because the good news about death for believers is that it leads to the full consummation of our fellowship with our Redeemer. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Absent from the body, present with the Lord in his in the Father's house. How many dwelling places have there been? Well, there was the Garden of Eden, there was Mount Sinai, there was the Wilderness Temple, Tabernacle, Solomon's Temple, Zerubbabel's Temple. Now, if you notice, I moved Herod's Temple over a couple tabs <laughs> because God really didn't dwell with man there. He dwelt with man there only when the Lord Jesus was there, but the Lord Jesus was actually the next dwelling place of God with man, the Lord himself. And then I put the Father's house, the heavenly temple there. Next, why don't I have the heavenly temple at the very beginning? Because man did not dwell with God in his third heaven until after Christ was resurrected. So that's why I've got that dwelling place where I have it, the Father's house. Today, the church is God's dwelling place on earth. There's going to be another temple built. Do you know the Jews are actually, they've got everything ready for it to build it, even the priesthood, etc., everything they need, red heifers, the whole shebang. Um, but, and they, they think it's going to be the third temple. It's not on God's counting. <laughs> the third temple is going to be the millennial temple where Christ actually dwells on earth and for a thousand years. But the tribulation temple I also put to the side because God doesn't dwell there. That's where Antichrist sets up an image of himself in the Holy of Holies. 
Well, after that, we have the millennial temple where Christ will dwell with man for a thousand years here on this earth. And then after that, this earth is dissolved. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And there's not going to be a temple throughout eternity. No temple. You know why? Because it says in Revelation 21, 22, God and Lamb are the temple of God. We don't need a dwelling place, a specific dwelling place, because they, we will be with them. So that is... Uh, all the dwelling places I could think of. All right, the, tw the tabernacle is mentioned um, 320 times in the Bible. It sat right in the middle of the camp of the Israelites, allowing equal access to and protection by the Lord for all. It was in the middle. The 12 tribes were situated around it. There were three tribes of Israel. How many tribes of Israel were there? 12. Joseph was replaced, not because he was a bad guy, this was actually a blessing, Joseph's two sons became tribes instead of him, Ephraim and Manasseh, and then uh, the Levites actually would make a 13th tribe. Well, they were, the Levite tribes were, um, I don't know, I'll show you later on, I've got a picture, but they were immediately around the tabernacle, and then the other tribes, there were three tribes on each of the four sides of the tabernacle. Um, God was in the midst, just like you see here the picture, Christ in the, in the church, he's in the middle of the seven candlesticks, the seven candlesticks picture his church. He always likes to be in the middle of his people. Well, orientation for the tabernacle began to the east. There was only one way into the tabernacle and it was on the east. It was the side with the ta tabernacle's only entrance. Also, the entrance into the, um, the Garden of Eden was situated on the east. The tabernacle always, every time they set it up, it had to be facing east toward the sunrise. It's interesting. I grew up Greek Orthodox, and you will find every Greek Orthodox church on this planet is built facing the east because of that. Nothing wrong with that. It's kind of neat, but it's not important for us today. But the Jews still need to be looking toward the east because it says when he comes at his second coming, he's going to come out of the east uh, toward the sunrise. Well, like the wilderness tabernacle, um, <clears throat> there was a threefold division with the Edenic sanctuary. I never talked about the Eden sanctuary. I talked about Sinai, but let's look at the Edenic sanctuary if you can see this. On the outside, just like the tabernacle wilderness, outside of Eden was the land of Nod. Nod means wandering. That reminds you of the Jews in the wilderness wandering. So you had outside was the land of Nod, the land of wandering. Then you had the land of Eden. Eden was just like the outer court. It was a land of Eden. Then from the land of Eden, you would go into the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was like the temple proper with the holy place. It was comparable to the holy place. Then there was the midst of the garden, which was the holy of holies, and in it was the tree of life. Who is the tree of life? God. Christ, so it was another sanctuary, three-part sanctuary on earth. Um, 
And it's interesting that God gave Adam commandments to keep and guard it, and those are the exact same words he used for the priests in their jobs in, uh, with the, the uh, tabernacle. They were to keep and guard it. You know, the priests, the priests were, um, had to be a descendant of Aaron. The Levites had to be descendants of Levi, one of the 12 sons. So the Levites, I always get this, I have to think about it. You, all Levites could be priests, but priests only could, no, all priests were also Levites, but Levites were not priests. Anyway, confusing. <laughs> They're two different. The Levites did all the dirty work, basically. You know, they did the moving and all that sort of stuff. The priest, well, I shouldn't say that. The priests did the dirty works. They had to do all the sacrificing of the animals and the blood and all that. So they actually, yeah, you're right. They did the dirty work. The Levites were the ones who um, moved the sanctuary from place to place. Well, there were no barriers in the original Edenic sanctuary, were there? There were no curtains, there were no veils until after the fall when man was banned from the garden. And then God set up two cherubim um, with flaming swords. They were placed at the garden entrance, not the land of Eden. You get that? The land of Eden was different from the garden. The cherubim were set up outside the garden why? That was actually an act of mercy on God's part, an act of grace, because if Adam or Eve or any of their descendants could get back into the garden, and if they would happen to eat of the tree of life, it would mean that they could never be glorified. They would never die. They couldn't have a glorified body, so they couldn't live in God's holy presence forever and ever. It means they would live on a sin-cursed world in a human body forever. They would never die. They'd be immortal, but they could never be redeemed and actually literally dwell in a glorified body with God. So do you get that? That's, all of it was God's mercy. Um, the, in the tabernacle proper, which is the building, the veil barring entry into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was embroidered with figures of what? Cherubim. It was a reminder of the perfect garden and God's angelic protection of the original earthly Holy of Holies. Cherubim were all over the place, actually, in the inner temple. They were on the ceiling, and they were on the walls of the curtains and they were on the veil cherubim all over actually we could say that eden reappeared on earth in the tabernacle and yet the way to return to intimacy with god was still blocked still blocked now the golden lampstand inside the holy place with its almond buds it was one solid piece of gold weighing 90 pounds, and it was made by hammering it. The man that built it or the guys, that, they hammered that gold to make this beautiful lampstand that had almond buds and blossoms and, on it. Um, and that was to picture the tree of life. Doesn't it look like the tree of life? They made the lampstand to look like the tree of life. The lampstand was also symbolic of Christ because it 
pictured him as the light of the world. It was the only source of light in the tabernacle proper. Otherwise, it would have been completely dark. But it was the light of the world. The light made the way to the tree of life possible by giving his life on a tree. Get that? <laughs> well, God's instructions for the tabernacle were, um, I'm almost done, I know you're hungry. The tabernacle, uh, or his instructions were presented in seven segments. Seven times he says, uh, he says something to Moses. It says this, and the Lord spake unto Moses saying, blah, 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 do this, do that, seven times. What does that remind you of? The creation account? Seven days, you know, seven times he spoke, and there were seven days of the creation week. The tabernacle was the focus of Israel's life, the focus of her, her worship life, her, her uh, national life, her ceremonial life, you name it. It was the center of everything. God divided the 12 tribes of Israel, pitched in tents, into prescribed locations on the north, south, east, and west of the tabernacle. Now, the tribe of Judah was placed directly before the eastern gate of the tabernacle. So, in other words, when you entered into the outer court of the tabernacle, it was necessary, because there's only one gate on the east side, you had to go through the tribe of Judah. Why is that significant? Because Christ is from the tribe of Judah. And to the way to God begins with Christ. The only entrance to the Garden of Eden was on the east. There are so many similarities. Well, camped on the east side with Judah were the tribes of Issachar and Zebulun. On the north were the tribes of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. On the west were Ephraim, Manasseh, two sons of Joseph, and Benjamin. And on the south were the tribes of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. The Levites, you see them in green here, even if you can't read the writing, the Levites were divided into four sections, and they were really the closest to the tabernacle. Now Moses, for some reason, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to include the number of men in each of these encampments on the north, south, east, and west. Does God do anything by accident or just, you know, randomly? Or is there always a reason for giving us numbers? There's a reason for everything. So there is a reason for me spouting off these numbers. So just hold with me and you'll be blessed in a minute. The number is for men only. But it provides us with an approximate number for the family tents. Because you picture each man had a family, all right? So approximate number of tents. We are told that on the east side of the tabernacle, that would be Judah's side, there were 186,400 adult men. Now that was the largest encampment was on the east side. There were on the west side 108 1,100 adult men. That's the smallest of the four sides. Then on the two sides, the, um, the north and the south, there were almost equal encampments because there were 157,600 men on the north and 151,450 men on the south. So they're relatively equal. So here you go. If you had a helicopter and you were able to see what the Israeli encampment looked like from up above, <laughs> you would clearly see 
the shape of a cross. The tabernacle was in the middle of the cross formation, very appropriately picturing the place that Christ occupied when he performed his great work of paying the redemption price for our sins. One more thing. Each three-tribe group on the four sides of the tabernacle camped by their own flag or standard or banner. Uh, each tribe, each of the 12 tribes had their own banner, but collectively on each side of the tabernacle, they would use a big banner for the major tribe of that encampment. I know that's confusing. But the four major tribes of each encampment were Judah, Ephraim, Reuben, and Dan. Now Judah, the banner for Judah, bore the figure of a lion. That doesn't surprise us, right? Because Christ is of the tribe of Judah, the lion out of the tribe of Judah. Well, the banner for Ephraim bore on it the figure of an ox. Reuben's flag had a figure of a man. And Dan's flag had the figure of an eagle. Now, Christ, Jesus, is represented for us in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, by the same four images, a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. You see, in Matthew, Christ is portrayed as king. Lion. Lion from the tribe of Judah. In Mark, Christ is portrayed as the servant of God. And what creature do you think of most with a servant? An ox. So Mark is comparable to the tribe of Ephraim, which bore an ox on its flag. In Luke, Christ is presented more in his humanity as the son of man. So it's poor, you know, comparable to the tribe of Reuben, whose flag had a man on it. And then in John, Christ is portrayed as the son of God, as deity, an eagle, which is on the flag of the tribe of Dan. Oh, forgot to show you my pretty picture there. It's not pretty on the wall. Oh, you'll have to watch the um, YouTube. <laughs> I said podcast again. All right, I'm sorry for taking you over. Oh, two hours. Woo. Father, um, thank you for all you teach us. Now bless us with the food and refreshment time that we have. Thank you for these women providing for us. Bless it to the nourishment of our bodies and prepare us for the next session. Thank you for all that you teach us through your wonderful masterpiece type of your son. For we ask in his name. Amen.